0: Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two Street Candles. Today's installment Chapter 32. Like a bullet, like a streak of charged particles from a killing machine, Alan Small's head snapped to me. The look of his shocked face was getting familiar. Open-mouthed, then frightened, then murderous. Oh, this guy hated surprises. <laughs> you are mad, Billings pronounced with a muttered laugh. Perhaps my expression changed as I watched Griselda's scheming passenger. Perhaps it was harder or heavier. Perhaps I was just tired. Whatever it was, Billings' expression fell back into one almost like horror. Bacon is long dead. He was at least thirty years older than this man, and he looked nothing like him. What is this fraud? Metamorphic gene sculpting, I stated simply. I believe you're familiar with the process, or at least your doubles are, Mr. President. A person's genetic code gets superseded and rewritten by another, then all their tissues are force-grown into the new form at a controlled, though greatly accelerated, rate. The aging clock can be reset as well. It's a chance for a man to start his life over as someone else. Again, no one moved. No one even breathed, I think. We were silent, frozen, unyielding. Indeed. I went on after a timeless moment of complete inaction, our collective composure growing heavy, more immediate, more brittle. Cryle Bacon is dead. Meet his replacement, Mr. Alan Small. Pretend reporter, pretend mercenary, a man on a mission. The deposed despot's laughter had long petered out, his mocking grin fading as he looked to Small "'searching for the face of that old confederate, "'that dark man who performed such dark tasks. "'It's... it's... "'Don't say impossible,' I instructed. "'You know better.' Preta, Maharn queried, "'with wonder in her voice, on her face. "'She spoke in Seishon, the language of the elites, "'of those of noble birth from over the border. "'She stepped forward with one hand out. She wore no gloves, and her fingers were alabaster and smooth, only now turning red with the cold. Small didn't move, but his eyes had shifted back, and they were filled with as much tenderness for her as they'd been with venom for me. So may, Imoda. She touched his cheek timidly, flutteringly, like the wing of a hummingbird. She stared into his eyes, looking for recognition. A knowing reflection that would make it all real. It's perfect, she declared at last, her accented English clear and triumphant. I told you they were the best. And the RNA identifying markers? None, her man replied. A hefty bribe that, but worth it. No one could ever prove what this man has just said. It's a new start, Emota. Soon, for the both of us. And we can afford it, yes? Her grin was honest, toothy, girlish. Oh, yes. And she jumped into his arms. We can buy the universe itself. What goes on? Billings demanded, his confusion rapidly shifting to anger. Delay, darling. What is the meaning of these words? Of these strangers? She ignored him and planted one right on Mr. Small's grinning lips. They laughed and spun about, because the game was over. They had won, and eternity was now theirs. And that suddenly spooked me. Because if time really was theirs, it was a sick, selfish sort of forever that had no need or desire for the past. Terrible things could be forgotten in that kind of time. Monstrous deeds and epic events alike could become as so much vapor, used up, exhaled, just flicked away. And it could all start right now. Mr. President, I muttered, leaning in, please come with me. He didn't hear, wasn't listening, and just shoved past me. In the bright lights and deep shadows of this side of the house... I hadn't seen his pistol, but it was in his shaking hand by the time he crossed over to the reunited lovers. He spun Maharn around and pushed her aside, out of Small's arms, then pointed the weapon at the remade man's chest. Great fair! fe Whatever they meant in detail, there was acid enough in those stabbing Seishan words to burn through solid hull plating. Small finally came out of his trance, just in time to see that a dictator had the drop on him. The older man, or was he really the younger, waved for Small to throw down his stubby machine gun, his own weapon shaking in his hand, half a meter from that expensive face. My panther was aimed at Billing's back, and I called for him to stop, to drop his pistol, but he didn't hear me, couldn't hear anything from someone like me not when a dead competitor was back among the living. For this had the earmarks of a rivalry that extended back long before Maharn had finally migrated to the biggest power base on Barlow, once Bacon had begun the next stage of their ambitious project. Perhaps taking the tyrant Billings for her lover might not have been an original bullet point in that strategy, but who could be blamed for a bit of self-preservation? But where on Barlow could they go to hide? Well, how about a place the rabble didn't know about? A place even few elites had ever seen? A place that her old and now once again new love most certainly did. For despite his statement to the contrary, I'm sure Small would have remembered this mountain eventually. After he was done with the hiding and fighting and running, he would have come and she would have welcomed him whether I'd ever fallen out of the sky or not. Mr. President, I urged, I demanded, lower your gun! Still I was ignored, and still he growled out curses in the lingo of the elites. Then the top of his head exploded, splattering over me and over the snowy ground. Maharn held a pistol of her own at arm's length, calmly, steadily. The older man dropped away and bled clear stuff, gray stuff, and lots and lots of red into the earth of the world he'd enslaved. Then the woman's gun was on me, her eyes holding far less affection for a round, dirty, lacerated stranger than for the man she'd just killed. But a word from Small stayed the shot, and she brought the pistol down from arm's length. Small kissed her again and they both laughed closely, intimately. Holding the woman around her waist, the tall man looked to me. How, jock? Who talked? His question seemed to include everything that had happened, everything he'd been working toward, his new identity, his goal, this place. It had all been so cryptic in his mind, so perfect. No one could have known unless there'd been a leak. With guys like him, it always came down to the unreliability of other people. I'm not very outgoing, Mr. Small. You don't mind if I keep calling you that. No, I don't make friends easily, but I managed to score a few here, despite all, or maybe because of it, I don't know. Some of them were rich and some were poor, but in their own ways, they were all extremely well-informed. You put together a quality espionage network in a matter of days he countered. Well, aren't you just the genius operative? His tone had descended into uncharacteristic sarcasm, but his Vidstar grin was back. I thought it dead and gone for a while, but here it was, rising again from the same grave an organizer of death squads and torture policies had crawled. A man hated and feared by a populace and by his own regime. One despised by all... Save a woman who could shoot her current lover in the head without sigh, regret, or hesitation. That smile just blazed with the assumed destiny of one for whom the galaxy began and ended with himself. The blood of a man, dead less than a minute, was on my face and clothes, and the blood of so many more stained deeper yet. I don't know about that, Mr. Small. I replied, ignoring his teasing and the disgust that edged my fatigue. But I learned many things. I learned about Cryle Bacon and about this charming lady. I learned about this house. It was clearly secret because no one else I spoke with even once mentioned it. You knew about the place, though. You recalled those back roads, which aren't on any map. You remembered the community. You even knew that those sheds over there were recent. He watched, bemused, I think, like I was a trained monkey. Maharn's expression of impassive and barely restrained violence was unchanged, and her weapon, though held low, was pointing again. In an age where a man can be made over, head to toe, inside and out, well, figuring it out actually doesn't take a genius, does it? His smile still remained. I thought he'd be pissed at learning how transparent he was, but instead, he chuckled. He kissed his lady once more, then gave me what I honestly believe was an admiring glance. I say a lot of things to a lot of people, Ejog, but I rarely mean them, as you probably know. You, however, have earned my respect. You're sharp and observant. I admire that. Off to the side and down below, I saw my captain and her broker limping together across the open patch of the valley, negotiating the battlefield. I spoke clearly and slowly because I wanted my voice to carry in the still night air. I wanted my words to be weapons. You butchered and terrorized the people of this world just so they'd rise up and overthrow the government. It was a deliberate plan wide-scale torture and murder for personal ambition. You stand there offering me compliments over the ashes of this world, of your own people. Can you possibly imagine what I think of you, Mr. Small?" Maharn raised her pistol once more, like an accusing finger. Why does this one still need to live? she asked her old lover, her accent thick, her tone flat, her beautiful eyes shining and dead. Why'd you kill everyone else on the mountain? I challenged in return. Just to keep your presence here a secret? To keep his? I waved a hand at the dead man on the ground. Small, in turn, held up a palm as a call for patience on both sides, not even seeing the irony of being the voice of reason here. Maharn didn't drop her aim, but she didn't kill me either. Give us a moment, please, Ejock. Turning away, the tall man motioned to confer with his lady, and I saw him touch a finger behind his left ear. Status? he muttered quietly. Maharn, standing next to him, watched me, slowly lowering her pistol like it hurt to do so. Ejock Carmi called from over the edge of the hill, and I jogged back. She and Dell had hobbled across the treacherous face of the valley. The last few meters of the hill were too steep for the injured man to surmount with just one person's help. I stepped and slipped down to them. "'What are you doing over here?' I hissed, trying to turn them back the way they'd come. "'It's not safe!' "'We heard vehicles,' Dell supplied, coming from the village. "'And there are headlights,' Carmi put in, pointing over in that direction." Sure enough, I spied a couple of bright points that, as I watched, appeared and disappeared behind the distant tree line and boulders. Ah, oh, well, that's just beautiful, I spat, my own sarcasm dripping and more natural to my ears. I called up to the two I didn't like or trust. After a moment, they appeared on the ridge above. I pointed over to the approaching revolutionaries. Those guys are too close already to have been drawn here by the fighting. They must have been following our trail somehow. You want to kill the car lights? They'll have seen them already," Small pronounced down to us. They're probably watching us even now. The convoy will be delayed by that avalanche, but scouts would have been sent ahead. It's possible they even called for air support. That was a thought. A crazy thought. I brought up my retinal display and placed a call as I turned back to my group. Leaning into Carmi, I whispered, I need a commit code. The context of my request threw her entirely. She was baffled for a moment. Still, she matched my volume. Excuse me? A commit code? What are you... No time, Captain. Please. She must have seen it in my eyes. The fear... Because she just nodded. She related a series of numbers and nonsensical sentences to my wrist. In my eye view, I received a green light, and with a gestural wave of my hand, I exercised the privilege she had just unlocked. But it would still take time. I caught Dell under the shoulder, and Carmi did the same. He gasped when he put weight on his injured leg, but something still lent him endurance and extra motivation because he hopped and pushed himself forward, upward, away from that dark valley. The captain and I alternately lifted him, steadied him, and pulled him along. We were all breathing hard when we stepped up past the robots, which were still smoking and stinking of charred plastic and oil. I glanced at Small and Maharn, who remained unmoved. She was watching for the approaching blues, her face as cold and striking and silent as the mountains around us. Small still talked on his calm and said sharply, No! Absolutely no lights! Acknowledge! He waited for an answer, then leaned into his companion's ear. She in turn drew her eyes away from the oncoming tide and smiled. She tapped her pocket with her free hand. Small broke into his grin, and it was a big one, the biggest yet, filled with laughter and wonder in equal measure. The old man was dead for sure. This one was ageless, and every day from now on would be his birthday. He held the woman's hand. He kissed her fingertips. He kissed her lips. When the tall fellow turned and brought his weapon to bear, I was still locked on those images, on what they meant, still skylarking. But something hissed past my ear. It angled off Alan Small's smile with a funny little knock. And he grunted, staggering back, his injured leg buckling. Going down hard, weapon dropped and lost in the snow. His hands were to his face, and blood already ran through his fingers. Always cool, always professional, Delman folks had let fly a fist-sized rock no one had seen him pick up in his painful scramble to the top. Maharn fired three times, very fast, but not at me. Panther still in hand, I could have killed her. I should have. I did react, but without training and without thinking. When a fat man throws his weight around, people fall down. The gun went flying from her hands, lost like her lover's, and we wrestled in the snow like kittens for a ridiculous moment. Alan Small was moving now and he tried to wrench me off. I pushed the woman into him hard, and the back of her head banged into his bloody mouth, staggering him again. She kicked at me and rolled off, but I held on to her cold gear by the pockets and she didn't go far. The blond man cursed in English, low Lowspeak, shan, and the woman screamed in rage or maybe pain. Chivalry being dead, I punched her full in the stomach, which knocked her into small one more time. He growled, then used his genetically crafted muscles to hoist her to the side. His short rifle was still hung from his shoulder, and he scrambled to bring it to bear. Carmi appeared behind him, though, and kicked his head. It was a hard, wild attack, and she lost her balance going down, joining us all there in the snow. Small was stunned his once beautiful, expensive countenance now beaten by rocks and boots. We all flopped, crab-walked, rolled away from each other, slipping, clamoring to our feet. Small, stubby rifle was now behind him somehow, yet still slung from one shoulder, and he twisted for it savagely like a mad dog chasing his tail. Carmi and I were on our feet too, as was Delay Maharn. When this woman saw me reaching for the panther, which was big and dark and easy to see in the snow, she grabbed her man by one arm and dragged him back towards a corner of the house. He stumbled, cursing, trying to fight her off, trying to untangle his weapon, trying to kill. But she was a survivor, and she made him move. By the time I had my weapon again, they were past the carport and out of sight. Griselda's broker lay in the snow where he fell, gasping, eyes squinted closed. Carmi knelt next to him while I watched the corner of the house. The two schemers back there were staying clear, but I could hear them cursing and moving around. We were still exposed and in a bad spot for a gunfight. I should have grabbed Carmi and drawn her away. But Dell was dying and he couldn't die alone. Her crew, her family. We would stay in this spot and maybe join him, rather than let him slip away without a loved one at his side. I knew this was how she felt, I knew it was stupid, and I knew I agreed. Carmi held the crewman's head in her lap. It had been so quick. Seconds, it seemed. Seconds to be destroyed. And then Delman folks died like he'd lived, quietly, simply, efficiently. His eyes closed in pain. He breathed raggedly several times, gasped once, and was still. Those eyes, relaxing in death, opened a bit, unfixed, unseeing. Tears streamed down the captain's cheeks, but she wasn't hysterical, or even distracted, now that this part was over. Not while there was still a crisis. That's not how we did things on Griselda. I brought up a particular interface in my eye view, ignoring an urgent call from a that flashed insistently in my inbox. There wasn't time for his crap, or anyone's, including my own. I checked timing and directions. This required attention, so I didn't notice the whine of an approaching air car until Carmi touched me on the arm. It was almost upon us, in fact, but it didn't come from across the valley, and it didn't have the deep, throaty roar of the military vehicles. It was soft and high, like the civilian cars I'd heard, the ones that were easy to steal. The car buzzed mechanically overhead, no lights, just a big, dark blur cruising above the roof to the far side of the hill, just like the pilot had been ordered. I could hear its fans pitch high, putting the thing into hover mode back there, then ratchet down a hair so it could settle to the ground. Out of sight, engine still spinning, it sounded ready for immediate takeoff. Suddenly, a streak of light flew out from across the valley. For a sickening moment, I thought the shoulder-launched rocket was heading for us, but instead it blazed over the house and blew up several long seconds later, somewhere in the forest far beyond. It was either a bad miss, or a warning shot, and with the ill-trained yokels of Barlow it was even Money Witch. I ran over and risked a look around the corner, but saw little. Snow and ice were being thrown up from further off, behind the robot sheds. I jogged for a better look, but the air car was already on the rise, just a bit though, just barely off the ground. Long and sleek, but hard to see in any detail without its running lights, the thing moved laterally to the far edge, opposite the valley we'd come through. One door was yet open, and someone was leaning out, a long weapon in her hands. It was Ellen Wozniak, the sniper of few words. She aimed and fired, but the air car moved, and the shot rang off the leg of a dead automaton behind me. They were out over the edge of the hill now, the entire extraction having taken less than a minute Wozniak continued to track my stout form even as I ducked, but she'd found her focus now and followed my motion easily. She never fired again. Instead, she pitched head forward out of the car with a tapering scream, falling past the lip of the hill, which, as it turned out, was a sheer cliff. Small was leaning out, and he locked eyes with me across the mountaintop, he shrugged with his trademark smile and mouthed, Oops! Then he motioned for Larendel in the driver's seat to get them moving. The car flew off with a whine as the blond man slid the door closed. Another missile screamed out from across the valley, but the air car had dipped out of sight, using the mountain itself as cover. Its high, buzzing whirr was muffled, remote-sounding, and moments later simply gone. My God, Carmi called. Why did he do that? She was one of his. The captain had creeped to the edge of the house and seen it all. He didn't need her anymore, I stated, returning to her side. And he's left us for the revolution to chew on. Where can we go? She was looking back at the destroyed little town and at the approaching lights. I pulled up my interface again and made some adjustments. I stared right through the HUD display, down at the valley and over at the ridge, calculating, estimating, making wild guesses. It would be close. Nowhere. Now quiet. I have to see this. See what? Ejok, they'll kill us. A series of quick... Cracking explosions rocked the night, corresponding flashes from the other ridge having arrived a second earlier. "'That was the rubble blocking the road,' I commented. "'They'll be here soon.' "'I don't understand,' she said calmly, assessingly, professionally. "'Why aren't they here already? "'They could have sent soldiers ahead on foot.' She looked down at Dell. then. He lay in the soft snow. "'I'd say peacefully.' if I hadn't seen how he died. Maybe the robots look intact from a distance. Maybe they just don't know what they're doing. Either way, those guys will be getting ready to assault this house. And that's good. It's what we need. I don't follow. Can we get that other air car started? I have no idea, I replied testily. We don't have time to mess with it, and I need to concentrate. On what? Ejok, what are you doing? Spending your money. I muttered, gesturing for mid-stage vector options and then drawing an arc with my fingers through the air, which the RISComp tracked and translated to numeric parameters. In my optic display, I switched to a map of the mountains. It was an ad hoc one that I'd been updating as we traveled, with little codes and nicknames I'd made up on the spot for each point of interest and landmark we passed. It had all been haphazard with most waypoints' mere estimates. They were poor, inaccurate, and all I had. Carmy was still asking for details when the lights appeared on the road across the ridge at the edge of the little valley. I could see at least two armored ground transports over there, both with mounted guns. They could park right on the lip of the valley and hammer this ridge until the only things left standing were the two dead robots. But with any luck, those weren't their orders. My retinals gave a rough calculation of their distance, and it wasn't a bad number to work with. I'd simmed harder stuff before, sure I had. I'd spent my own credit getting all the right certs, all the right training. It's what unemployment was for. The revolutionaries must have finally determined that the artillery bots were non-functional because they started down into the valley, slowly, indefatigably. Get back behind the house, I told the captain. Why? We've nowhere to go. That's a vertical drop. You saw it. Get back there. Run. Lay on the ground and hide your face. Do it, captain. This is gunnery talking. Gunnery? What are you... Oh... Oh, dear God, Jock! I grabbed her arm and pulled, interrupting her questions, her arguments. She tried to yank free as we jogged away from Dell's silent form, but I didn't slacken my pace or soften my grip. We kept moving until we were around the big house and past the empty sheds, until we were right on the far edge of this little plateau right near the precipice. I pushed her to the snowy ground. ''Head down!'' I shouted. When I turned to run back, she called out. But I didn't stop. Just one last adjustment. A glowing streak was now visible high, high above, bursting through the lowering sky, a streak that resolved itself into two, then three, then eight separate points of yellow light. I only saw this from the corner of my eye because I still had to guide them in. The aerospace flight missiles were on track for the other ridge. When I turned the corner of the house, there weren't two vehicles down there, but ten. And dark figures moved with them like nocturnal ants. Sixty or more soldiers on foot, weapons up and ready, and an unknowable number inside the trucks. Warning, autonomous lock-in pending. Just seconds until the onboard targeting systems stopped responding to outside control. Five. Eyeballing the oncoming platoon, I assigned a drift factor to the stilettos. Just a minor adjustment of .02 degrees to bring them down inside the valley instead of up on the rim. Four. .02? No, .025. Three. Crap! They'd hit here! .02, .02. Two. No, it had to be right. It... One. .022! Targeting locked and committed. Impact in ten. Nine nine, eight... That was when the bolt from a man-portable char-pack struck just over my head, ripping through the very walls of Maharn's favorite weekend getaway spot, shredding the heavy logs like gossamer. My right ear caught a splinter, and the impact threw me back out of immediate sight of the soldiers, but they just kept firing anyway. Head ringing. The mountains around me spinning sickly, I wobbled to my feet while particle beams and now bullets ripped and blasted through timbers and planks. Ducking and stumbling back toward Carmi, I moved with everything I had, everything my stoutness and lousy endurance could possibly provide. The flight bag as always hanging off my back, smacking my leg with every step. I'd only taken five when the missiles hit. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com. Or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.